0: Welcome to the DJE Podcast, where you will learn about real estate investing from real life examples. Here's your host, Devin Elder.
1: All right, today on the podcast, we've got Jerome Myers. He leads the Myers Development Group LLC, which focuses on buying broken apartment building businesses and using innovative thinking and solid execution strategies to optimize the operational Efficiency of the business. Currently, Mr. Myers is asset manager for approximately 90 units and 90,000 square feet of workforce housing across Virginia and North Carolina, and is on a mission to hold a thousand doors by the end of 2028. Without further ado, Jerome, how are you? Welcome.
0: Amazing. Thanks for having me on, Devin. This is awesome.
1: Yeah, yeah. Thank you for joining. Love it. Uh, um, uh, The mission. So, first of all, I love that you included a mission in here, right? Thousand doors by the end of 2028. Um, you, you know, you've, you might have heard it said, we underestimate what we can do uh, in, um, what is it we underestimate, we overestimate what we can do in a year, but underestimate what we can do in a decade. By 2028, man, I have no doubt, I have no doubt that you're holding a thousand doors, but tell me about the genesis of that goal and how, how did that come about?
0: Yeah, so the, the rest of that is a thousand doors and a hundred people. I'm going to find a hundred okay. people and help free them from work that they're not passionate about through apartment And I think, you know, for a lot of people, they want to go do something. They're not quite sure how they're going to monetize it. And so if we can figure out the income problem, not the job problem, but the income problem, then they can go do those things without much regard on how much they're getting compensated for it. And the perfect example for me is like being a teacher. Mm -hmm. Like there's so many people. And if I make it super personal, like I'd love to be a high school football coach. Like, If I could just do that, I think I would be in heaven. Right. But there's not much compensation when I was doing it kind of after work, I was, I think I was getting like $2,500 a season. Right. And when you multiply that all out, it's about a dollar an hour for all the work that we did. That's incredible. Yeah. You know, in order to be able to do those things we're most passionate about and I, let me back up. I guess I'm most guilty of choosing jobs that paid well. Right. I had to go handcuffs, And I remember pretty intensely flying back in from my consulting gig, flying over a football field after making that transition the season before into a different role where I was going to make like $600 more after taxes on a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. It's just like, I gave this up the impact and all the stuff that goes with it for extra $600 a month. And some people may be looking like, Jerome, you're crazy. Like $600 a month is a different car for me, or it's a different house. And I mean, at that point I I was making pretty good money to me, it didn't really matter. Right. Mm -hmm. But so, you know, just kind of shifting those priorities. I, I remember when I was a kid, I told my mom I wanted to be a garbage man. Lonnie would always come around hanging off the back of the truck. And my mom and I would be sitting in the front yard playing or whatever. And I had my little garbage truck. And I was like, when he pulled the handle and it crunched the trash, that was the coolest thing in the world. The other piece of that is he would get home at like three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's just like that's amazing lifestyle. My dad worked Carolina half days. He'd go in before six and he'd come back after six. And he taught me the value of hard work, but I really wanted to enjoy the lifestyle and do something really cool. And my mom looked at me and she was like, baby, that's not going to buy you Nikes. That's not going to buy you the types of jeans and shirts that you want. You got to pick a career that's going to actually compensate you in a manner for the lifestyle that you want to live. And I was like, man, but..." it. So that's when I realized that like jobs matter, like what you get paid matters. Um, I think it was great guidance. The only thing that I'm tweaking for my two daughters is you've got to have income streams that provide for the life that you want to live. And it's not necessarily a job. I think a lot of us are addicted to paychecks. And I think it's a pretty rough addiction because a lot of times we let that get in the way of making real impact in the world
1: hundred percent i love it and thank you for sharing that um we kind of jumped in on that you know helping 100 people and your target on units but i do want to back up and and i always like to hear about people's transition you talked a little bit about some of your career and stuff but you know what was the spark for you to look at real estate and then how did that transition actually happen because that's a that's a that's a big deal that doesn't happen by accident it doesn't necessarily happen overnight I love digging in and and, kind of uncovering that journey for people. So how how did that happen for you?
0: Man, you're going to make me rip the Band-Aid off again. So (laughs) I was in college. Me and my buddy Daron were sitting on the stoop and we started doing the math. I was paying $3.95. I had two roommates doing the same thing. He lived downstairs. They were doing the same thing. We multiplied it out. The guy that owned the complex was making $700,000 a year top line. We'd never seen him. We'd never talked to him. I think I can live like that, right? That was right. what We're second uh, year college or engineering students. It's just like, man, this would be amazing. And so, but we didn't know anybody. We didn't know how you do it. We didn't even, you know, we, I don't even know that we could count that high from a dollar perspective, but it made sense, right? Decoupling your time for money. And so we go off, we go into corporate America and I had the grand fortune of building this $20 million division for a Fortune 550. And, you know, I've showed up, Davey, it was January 13th, 2015. We had $0 in revenue. I was employee number two. End of the year it's like 175 people on the team, $20 million in revenue, $6 million in profit. Jerome, you did an amazing job. Your reward is you got to get down the workforce by 50%. What? We just made $6 million in profit. What are you talking about? Yeah. Uh, you can do it if somebody else will, but I recommend you do it because you got to do this again next year. And so I spend between Christmas and new year's figuring out who has a job in the new year and we let everybody know. And then we start the new year, start putting Humpty Dumpty back together again. And then we get to Thanksgiving and it's the same message. And I'm just like, I don't want to do this anymore. And I promised myself, you know, over that break between Christmas and new year's that I would never do that again because had somebody else come in and dictate to me what was going to happen in a business that I didn't have a whole lot of leadership in. And I didn't really spend much time talking to other people. It was my P&L. It was, I was responsible for the client and I was responsible for everybody's safety. And so to have that experience, it, it did something to me. It kind of ripped my soul open. And so I became a corporate America dropout when it came time to do it again. And so I left and thought I was going to buy an apartment building and went to 10 banks. And they all told me I didn't have the requisite experience. And I was like, what does that mean? I just built a big business. I've got money in the bank. I've got a 800 credit score. What else do you want? They said experience. They said, well, I got an MBA and a professional engineering license. What do you want? We want you to have signed a loan before and executed the same business plan that you say you're going to execute on this one. I'm like, well, I haven't done that. You're right. And we're not going to give you a loan until you find somebody who has. And so I start fixing and flipping houses because I didn't know what else to do. And I'm sitting on the stoop and the guy pulls up. He said, hey, let me check out the finishes in your house. We're getting ready to do one down the street. Want to make sure that we match what you're doing so that we come in at the right price point. And so we get to talking and he tells me, hey, I'm going to go buy a building do you know anything about it? I said, I tried to buy that building four or five months ago. And he looked at me and I looked at him and was like, please don't leave me out the deal. Like, you're the guy I've been looking for. They said, I need somebody with experience. And he goes and makes the offer. to <laughs> been <Yeah. laughs> clean out. Um, but then it didn't get accepted. He went and talked to a guy that I knew and said, hey, I want you to come in on this deal with me. And he said, that's Jerome. Jerome was talking about. I'll only do it if he does it. And so that's how I got my ticket punch. I was asset manager on that deal. And there was a press release that happened because we went with one of the big brokerage houses for purchasing it. And sure as my name hit the paper, the phone started ringing. There it is. The banks wanted to lend to me because I had experience now.
1: Amazing how that works.
0: Whole week into the project. (laughs) So that's the transition, man.
1: Yeah, that's such a great story. And it's funny how that it tips like that, right? You know, as you, soon as you do something, man, brokers want to talk to you. People want to do deals. And then, you, you, then you're in a very, very small group relatively, right? You got a lot of people that want to be involved in real estate, that want to invest in multifamily and they've been getting, uh, you know, shut out or they haven't taken action. But as soon as you do something, everything starts to change. That's cool. I love it. So that was, that was a pretty quick process. Then did you get stuck in the, like I did for years, flipping houses, I got stuck in that kind of what I'll call whirlwind. Right. Uh, How long did, how, you know, how many houses did you do just ballpark and how long were you doing that?
0: Uh, We probably did it. mm, A total of a year.
1: Great. Yeah. You, You
0: know, it was, it was less than 10 right? Mm-hmm. But they were, they were massive. Like, I think my biggest rehab was a hundred thousand, right? And it was a 1920s house and three stories and I don't know, 3000 square feet. It was, it was insane. I shouldn't have been doing it, but it was the one that actually made the introduction. And so it gave me a reason to get my contractor's license. And I began to understand construction in a way that I wouldn't have any other way. Any sure. other way. Um, it allowed me to learn how to estimate rehab budgets and all these other things that have become extremely helpful in the multifamily space.
1: Yeah, yeah, I love it. There are some skills that transfer. I always tell people it's kind of two different worlds, two different tracks, but stuff like that—that that those skill sets do transfer. Um, so, what is um, you know what happened with that project, and then what did you? you you know, sometimes we're like on this ladder, right? And you climb a few rungs up and then you look around and wow, things look different now that I've done this. Did you have that experience with that, uh, that multifamily deal where it's like, once you got into it, you started seeing maybe some new capabilities or new goals emerge in front of you?
0: I think I saw what not to do. I, I think
1: yeah. I saw them in the banks,
0: right? So had they lent me the money by myself on that deal, I would have been bankrupt, right? We underestimated the construction budget. It was... Yep. 23 units, we bought it for like 1.27, and we did everything, roof, siding, parking lot, landscaping, added a half bath on a slab on the first floor, uh, laundry room, granite throughout, remove walls because it was a townhome configuration, and then, you know, all the paint, carpet, lighting, all that good stuff, right? And so that project took a while, and it was painful, and we took occupancy to zero,
1: Wow, yeah,
0: and when we leased it back up, you know the rents beforehand were six ninety five when we purchased, and then we tuck it to eleven we get eleven ninety five there now, and so heavy, right. heavy value growth, right, but you know the journey to get there was really painful, and i I like to skip over that part because it is painful, but you know at the end of the day, like learned a ton there and Lots of stress, lots of frustration, lots of concern about, are we going to get through it? And, you know, having to do a capital call because, you know, initial contribution wasn't enough to sustain the project. Like all of that stuff is real and, you know, very few people talk about it. So
1: yeah, no, I appreciate your transparency on that um, because it is real and it can be pretty dicey after takeover when you got a bottom out occupancy especially to zero i mean man, what were you guys doing for management uh, on that were you guys signing leases or did you did you have some uh, a manager helping out or what did that look like
0: yeah so one of our partners in the deal is actually a property manager he manages about 4000 dollars across virginia and maryland so yeah
1: nice and this asset was where what market greens or, i'm sorry richmond virginia richmond virginia got it and so What kind of financing were you guys getting into on the, on the front end there?
0: So here's a tip for your listeners. If a, if you can find out who holds the loan on the property that you're buying and you go to that broker and say, Hey, we're looking at buying this. Don't you want to keep your paper? You've got a really high likelihood of getting that bank to fund the deal. And so that's what happened in this situation. Um, We just went back to the same community bank that I was already holding the paper.
1: Yeah. Did they give you any additional leverage or you just went in and assumed with the existing note? Oh, so it was a brand new loan. They wouldn't let us assume the existing note, but
0: yeah, we we did. They they gave us, well, we got it appraised. The valuation came in and we were able to get um, an 80% loan with some construction dollars. For, Very nice. Yeah, for that project. So it was it was super nice loan.
1: That's a good tip there because we see, we see deals, I'm sure you do with it, you know, the seller wants the buyer to assume it and it's a 55% leverage and there's no IO left and it's a four and a half percent rate. You're like, I, I don't know who in their right mind's assuming that. But you are starting the relationship with the bank. The bank doesn't really care. They want to generate some new debt. They might charge you a point and they're probably going to loan you more money now. You know, they might've had a loan for X amount before and they can loan you a little bit more. They know the asset. And so that's a great tip. I love it. And and you get to get the leverage that you want and the terms and current interest rates, all that good stuff. So that's a good, that's a good move there. I like it.
0: Yeah. The interest rate wasn't great. It was like 6.5.
1: <laughs> was it, what was occupancy though? Was it, was it, uh, at, at takeover?
0: It was probably 80%.
1: Okay. So, I mean, you look, if you sub 90%, you're going to, you're going to get those high, higher interest rate loans anyway. <laughs> so,
0: uh, that because bridge debt would have put us all out. I mean, yeah. and I love when I hear people coming in and especially now, right? Everybody's looking for a Corona deal, right? They're going to get this thing. Right. Oh, and I don't, especially people with no experience based on my experience. It's like, guys, like they're not going to give you any money. The bank's not going to give you any money. This deal isn't bankable. So what are you going to do? Cause you're not going to get the great deal because it's not bankable. You've got to go do bridge debt or something else. And I think bridge debt is a loaded gun for somebody that doesn't have experience because they will take the property and take everything else they can with it. If you're not careful.
1: A hundred percent. It's absolutely a loaded gun. It's a great analogy that I throw around sometimes. It's a tool. If you're trained and you know what you're doing, it's good. But if you don't, boy, that's going to cause a lot of misery. Um, because some of these guys, you know, they want a loan to own, right? Sure, they'll give you the money, and then they'll come take it, and they'll take all your investors' equity, and uh, on to the next sucker, right? So, yeah, for the discount, (laughs) that's it. That's thanks for all your equity and some construction you did. There you go. Yeah, no, that's absolutely right. So, what what is it? Having done that now, and I, I really resonate with what you said about learning what not to do or what you don't like doing. I've had, I've had some early experiences along those lines. Um, What is, what do you focus on now and what are, what are your kind of criteria for projects that you get into now in terms of size and, and scope of work and stuff like that?
0: Yeah, I don't know that it's changed all that much. So we'll do anything that we can see a clear path to forced appreciation, and we'll go as small as ten, and we like to be under a hundred, which is counterculture, um, or I guess counter mainstream, right? Everybody yep. wants a That's a C and a B with a value add play. Um, we we like to, We are we prefer joint ventures to syndications because. One, we want to own more of the deal. And then two, I think there's opportunity to open doors for more people who are trying to get into space. With syndications, you know, you've got to spend a fair amount of time building up your limited partners and all that other stuff. And I feel like if I'm spending time on that, I'm not spending time focusing on operations. Like at my core, I want to be one of the top operators in the country. And so I want to spend time on operations and working with the property managers and finding deals that actually make sense. And, you know, the investors are an important piece of the puzzle if you're building a syndication business. And so that's kind of where I stepped, kind of drew my line It's that I prefer joint ventures with really smart people who also have access to capital and are interested in the space and can see a, proper, a property or a business that we can come in and Increasing that operating income rather quickly.
1: Yeah, I love it. I love it. Raising capital and building a syndication business, especially if you're targeting that 100 plus unit space, that is a full time division of a company to, to do that. Right. So I love it. I, I was, you know, we target that, that same thing, right? 100 plus unit. But I always tell people there's opportunity in the smaller stuff because you just have, you, you have, call it no man's land, right? You got all these guys and their brother flipping houses, and boy, is that crowded. And then you got guys chasing the 100 plus stuff. But if you're targeting a 30 unit, you know, that's kind of neglected and you got the owners had it 15 years, I mean, you have a decent shot of having a principal to principal transaction. What does a typical JV setup look like for you guys? You don't have to go into, you know, exact numbers on a deal, but just for, for somebody listening that hasn't structured it that way, or maybe they're familiar with syndications, how do you put it together?
0: Yeah, so we still hold back some equity for the person that finds the deal. And anybody who signs a loan, we think those two things are really important, and people should be rewarded for them. And then the rest of the equity is distributed based on the capital contribution from the partners in the deal. It's important for us that everybody know that they're active coming into the deal. Um, the need for hands-on changes, pretty sure. radically. I think there's a lot during due diligence, and if the prop once the property stabilized, there's a whole lot less interaction. But you know, the other piece of this that's super important for me is the ability to make decisions that might not yield the biggest financial impact or return immediately. We want to be able to play the long game. And so if we can hop on the phone and say, hey, strategically, the water bill is X, we can replace this flapper or we can replace the toilet because over time we know that replacing these toilets is going to drop the water bill pretty dramatically that makes sense from a long range perspective, but short range, it doesn't make sense. Right. Because, you know, you could pay $50 for the flapper to get replaced and move on versus spending two or two fifty on the toilet. And so we, we like that longer range approach where we can do good in the community and make money for ourselves. And when we do those things, we think we get rewarded in a really big way because residents stay longer, which leads to less turnover. Uh, We, get people recruiting others like them to the community because they like where they live and that reduces advertising costs and drives up occupancy because people don't want to leave. You know, those things are like super exciting for us. And so, you know, from a split perspective, depending on the deal, you know, I I think it looks very much like a syndication. Um, The people who are signing and finding can pull anything between 20 to 30% of the deal. And then everybody else just as their capital in, and then they participate in whatever the hands need, you know, you can walk the property and help with due diligence. Cause you know, personally I like to go through every unit before we close on it. And you know, as the properties get bigger, it becomes more time intensive, but really enjoy going in every unit. It could be reviewing models. It could be talking to property managers or looking at different debt options. And so there's just so many things that happen in the beginning. And then as you move throughout, just making operational decisions, here's plan, here's actual, what do we need to adjust going forward? Does it make sense to refi? Does it make sense to sell? And everybody just kind of pitching in and helping execute against the strategy.
1: Yeah, I like it. I think it's a great model. I think it lends itself very well to an, you know, an asset that's that 10, 10 to 100 unit range, right? Where you can make it happen and, and uh, just with a handful of partners. I love it. What are some of your, your CapEx favorites? You know, when you come into a property, um, you know, the interiors are Usually they're kind of all the same, right? But I mean, are there any are there any things you guys are wanting to do or or liking to do on properties with, in terms of a rebrand or a certain amenity or things like that that you found uh, goes over real well with your your customers?
0: You know, one of the things that was with the, <laughs> I'm trying to pick my words here because I want to be kind to my fellow investors, but it <laughs> hurt me. Look, man. When I walk into an apartment and everything's the same color, right? The trim, the walls, the ceiling, it's all painted the same color. Um, I've even seen people paint the refrigerator and the cabinets the same color. Just come through and spray everything. It irks me, right? So my big thing is I want agreeable gray or some other shade of gray on the walls. I want the trim to be painted a different color. And I want the ceiling to be a super flat ceiling white right? And that just makes the thing pop, especially when you get some good LED lights in there. Yep. And if if we can do that, I think we've went a long way from where we started. And I don't, for the life of me, I don't understand why people do that. Um, we are doing luxury vinyl plank. and I think most people are doing that now. We really like that. We think that it gives the property a lot of durability, we don't have to worry about carpet cleaning, but Mm -hmm. it does scratch and sometimes it does rip. And so you've got to balance that stuff. Uh, And I think the only other thing that's really big on our list on the interiors is going to be, you know, low flow stuff. Some of the properties that we buy, we pay the water bills. So we want to have low flow toilets and faucets so that we reduce the amount of consumption. And I think it's just right for the environment. On the outside. You know, we usually buy stuff that doesn't have any amenities, right? So we might put some tables out and maybe some type of barbecue area. But outside of that, the people that we've been serving and bring it full circle and go back to the teachers, right? So we're serving teachers, firefighters, police officers, good quality workforce housing. They don't really have a whole lot of social stuff they want to do outside. They want to come home to a nice, safe place that is well-maintained and rest. And so we don't spend a lot of time on the amenity wars that you're seeing in A++ properties for sure.
1: Yeah. Well, hey, that makes it simple if it's not broke, right? Um, I love it. That's a, that's a good overview. So you see people paint the fridge. I don't know if I've ever seen that and I've seen a, a lot of units, man. Paint the fridge, huh? It's the same color? They The refrigerator and the
0: cabinets were the exact same color. With, <laughs> it wasn't even appliance paint. Just one, just load up the, 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 the paint and just go to town, huh? You Got to do is put your goggles and your suit on and spray yep. everything that's not
1: moving. <laughs> all right. Well, that's, that's a new one. I thought I'd seen it all in the interiors. Uh, maybe not. Maybe not. Um, what is your philosophy on kind of on your, on your hold period? You know, you talked about your philosophy on unit size and, and your, your uh, structure, yeah. In terms of, uh, you know, are you guys buying hold forever? Are you trying to refi at 18 months? Is it case by case? What's what's your philosophy there?
0: Yeah, when we model things, we want to be able to refi and return all invested dollars in year three or four. Nice. Right? We we don't feel good about returning 50% or 60% of the equity. We want to get every dollar back out. And that allows people to either go do the next deal or, you know, do whatever they need to do. But I feel like it makes it really easy to hold forever once you have an infinity return. Right. And we will, we will sell if somebody wants it a lot more than what we want it. Especially we like 1031 buyers because they seem to make erratic decisions um, just because they want to avoid paying taxes. Uh, So, you know, we're open, always open to selling, but we want to execute the business plan get the valuation up so that we can get the equity back out and can go do another deal. That's our preference.
1: I love it. Yeah. if you're returning a hundred percent of capital, you're not going to get a lot of complaints on hanging on to it for a long time because it's all gravy after that. Right. So love it. Love it. Um, the, you know, given the size of, of units you guys are targeting Jerome, you know, that tended to, to hundred unit. Um, you're definitely more hands-on than say if you were some manager, you know, some asset manager uh, on a 200 unit in another market, you know, where you might not hear the day-to-day kind of noise. So you probably have seen some stories. Is there anything crazy? Uh, I know I've seen my share absolute craziness on site. Any stories kind of stick out in mind that you want to share? And if not, that's fine. But I always like to ask, especially on the smaller properties.
0: Yeah, of course. I've got all kinds of great stories. Mostly (laughs) But you know, whatever. So, my favorite mistake that I've made, and it's an amazing story. So, we walk into a unit and it's got central HVAC, but we see window units in the property. And we're like, what's going on here? And so, we look up at the vents when we get in the unit, they're all taped off, Car- cardboard across the vents, tape all the way around in every room. I'm like, what's going on here? So, the resident isn't there. So I look at the owner because we, we were direct to seller on this one. And I was like, why would they cover up the vents? He's like, I don't know. It's no big deal. They're just trying to keep the electricity bill down. I was like, oh, okay. So you haven't had any calls about the HVAC? Nope. All right. So we go over and we try to turn it on. And the outside unit cuts on and then it clicks back off. Like, try it again. Click on, click off. Like, okay, well, I don't know what it is. And then we smell this stench coming out of the, like, what in the world is going on here? And the owner's like, don't worry about it. It's not a big deal. I'll just ask them what happened later. And so <laughs> we're like, okay, yeah, no big deal. And so we go back and we ne- I think we negotiated a little concession. And we go back and after closing, we send in the HVAC guys like, we want to get this right for the resident. There's no reason for them to have window units. And he climbs up in there and he starts looking around and he's like, um, a raccoon fell into the heating unit and was seared onto the coils. And that was the smell. That was the smell of death that you guys had.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, love it. Oh, man. You cooking on those coils.
0: You have to replace everything, you have to replace all the ductwork and everything in the cabinet so that this will leave i'm just like what in the world and so that was another four thousand dollar unit in like the first few weeks after closing and so for your listeners if you don't know what the problem is don't close until you know what you're actually so you can actually be properly compensated for it yep. um one different transaction uh, we didn't have the utilities on right and everybody who sees and knows that you've got to have the utilities on when you do your inspections, because why wouldn't you have your utilities on? We did. And so the water was off in a unit and after closing, we go into rehab it. It was one of the down units. Um, as soon as we turned the water on a pipe in between the shower and the toilet started pouring water out of the wall. And so these are side by side townhome units. And so not only did it mess up the kitchen in the unit we were in, it messed up the kitchen in the unit next door. And so we had to do two units when we only thought we were gonna do one. It was amazing. Imagine water pouring onto your cabinets that were the finest built in 1975, right? They fold up pretty quickly. And So those are my two, you know,
1: I think they're big because they could have been easily avoided, but those are two of my favorites. I like it. Well, thanks for sharing that. That's real estate, right? Especially when you're buying stuff that's built in the 70s, 80s, you're not getting around it. I mean, there's gonna be some surprises there. So, and those are pretty tame. Those are all kind of like, uh, you know, uh, construction related type, uh, you know, uh, items. So I like it. I like it. So what are you doing now with, you know, you're full time with this, you're looking at deals, you're JVing deals. Um, what What else are you What else are you involved with kind of in the multifamily space?
0: Yeah, so we're working on a development deal. Uh, We're doing 120 units here in Greensboro. Outstanding. um, Opportunity Zone Project, which we're super excited about, um, working through the process with HUD. So for those folks who don't know, HUD will give you a non-recourse 40-year loan with The lowest interest rates I've ever seen outside of buying a single family residence and the loans fully amortized. There's no reset. It is what it is. And so we're working through that process right now. And I think we'll be able to break ground in the second quarter of 2021, which is extremely exciting. And then, you know, just trying to share this story. uh, I when I got into this space and I looked around, I didn't really see anybody who looked like me that was talking about doing deals and I realized about a year ago, maybe 14 months, that like there are some people out there who will look around and say, hey, nobody looks like me doing this. Maybe I can't do it. And so right. I've been kind of on this tear of encouraging people to tell their stories so and stop trying to hide and for worry about somebody asking if they can pick your brain or wanting to see if they can piggyback and tag team on something with you like we want to open this space up because, I mean, there's very few people that can actually do this at a high level. And so the more people that we can get into the space that um, care and have the right values and morals, I I think those are the people that we want to be operators because at the end of the day, we're dealing with somebody's, like, one of their most personal spaces, their home, right? That's right. You know, a lot of people say, oh, yeah, they're just tenants. It doesn't matter. But no, this is somebody's home. And when you start thinking about residents and treating them with respect and dignity. And for us in particular with workforce housing, like I want the police officers and the firefighters and the teachers that rest well so that they can get up and do the jobs that keep us safe and protected.
1: That's it. I love it. I love it. Well, that's, thank you for sharing that. Um, If somebody is listening, they want to connect with you. They have not, uh, you know, been introduced to your world, what's a good what's a good channel for them to do that?
0: Yeah, if you want to learn more about our approach to multifamily investing, um, myersmethods.com, M-Y-E-R-S-M-E-T-H-O-D-S.com, will allow you to get a free four-step guide that talks about our approach and why we like joint ventures over syndications, which, you know, a lot of people are exactly the opposite. And then if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn, I'm there every day. And I'm the only Jerome Myers in
1: Greensboro, North Carolina. That's nice. That makes it a little simpler. (laughs) Well, we'll link to that in the show notes, especially the website. Jerome, thank you so much for coming on, sharing your story. Really appreciate it. And here's to continued success in the the year ahead and beyond.
0: Devin, I'm on your mailing list, man. I wish you guys continued success. You guys are turning them out, and it's just awesome. (laughs) We've been busy.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for joining. We'll connect soon. Appreciate it. So awesome. Thank you. All right.
0: Thank you for listening to the DJE Podcast. For more information, please go to djetexas.com.